0: Arrested mobility is this assertion that Black and Brown people's mobility has been denied by legal and illegal authority.
1: Charles Brown is a world-leading researcher at the intersection of health, equity, and transport. His work centers, as he calls it, people closest to pain—Black, Brown, and low-income communities who have traditionally, and currently, poorer infrastructure than their neighbors. I invited Charles onto the podcast to have a conversation about how we can better create opportunities for outdoor physical activity in parks and public spaces for Black, Brown and minoritized communities. My name is Dr. Maddie Orr, this is the Climate Champions Podcast, and welcome back. So Charles T. Brown, a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation since we connected about a month ago now, and. You're a senior research specialist at the Allen M. Voorhees Transportation Center. Uh, You run Equitable Cities. You're involved in a number of projects as a a pracademic working at the intersection of uh, transport and active living and health and community well-being. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your work. I want to learn about you before we dive into cycling and active transit and all these different pieces.
0: Right. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you, first and foremost, for having me here. Um, as you alluded to with a slight correction, uh, I'm a senior researcher with the Allen M. Voorhees Transportation Center. I'm also an adjunct professor at the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy And both the Voorhees Transportation Center as well as the Blaustein School are both at Rutgers University. I also serve as a 2020 fellow within the Yale program on climate change communications in partnership with the op project. And lastly, as you stated, when I have time, I'm the founder and managing principal of Equitable Cities, LLC, uh, which is a urban and regional planning policy and research firm working at the intersection of transportation, health, and equity. So when it comes to my work, Um, I'm very much rooted in addressing the concerns of the sort of historically underserved and disenfranchised communities uh, throughout North America, as well as around the world when the opportunity presents itself. Uh, This is my focus because I identify as a Black man. I've lived and was reared in rural Mississippi. I've served in the military but I've worked in the private sector, the public sector, and now academia. And one of the things that I've known consistently throughout all those different worlds is that those who are suffering continue to be black and brown people and low-income people throughout North America. So I made it a very conscious and early decision early in my career that no matter what field I was in, I would always center those who were struggling most. And so as I work now at this intersection of transportation, health and equity, my research agenda, my workshops and my trainings and all of the keynote presentations that I do throughout the course of a given year continues to center those most in need.
1: Very interesting. And so bringing together huge fields like when I think of equity, I like that's just such a huge piece. Um, that should be ingrained in every field and every domain. But what does it mean to bring together transit or transport and equity and health? Like what, what does that intersection actually look like? Um, Tell me about some of those projects or or what the work is.
0: So at the intersection of transportation, health and equity are where you find the needs of people. And so I center people in my work. My work consists of some of my most notable uh, contributions as I've gained this sort of international attention for helping create safe, healthy, and livable communities. It includes uh, research such as understanding the barriers to biking and walking for blacks and Hispanics throughout New Jersey, understanding barriers to biking and walking for black women, Hispanic women. Um, mm-hmm analyzing the impact of crime on walking frequency and propensity, also drafting updated ed pieces on centering and prioritizing equity in transportation planning and decision-making. I've done work around looking at access in parks and open spaces. And then lastly, I've served as an instructor for the Smart Growth America, National Transit Institute, Federal Transit Administration, Federal Highway Administration as well as I'm a part of the CDC's Walkability Action Institute, where I serve as a member of course faculty. And in each of those roles, again, I'm centering the needs of people, but I'm focusing on those who have been most disenfranchised, which are black, brown, and low-income populations throughout the America.
1: So the reason that I was initially drawn to your work was the cycling, active transit piece. Um, so cycling, walking. Running, if that's what a person is into, um, moving people moving from point A to point B in a way that is safe and comfortable for them. And as I was looking through this podcast, is about sports, but I was look as I was reflecting on what was missing, I realized a few things were missing so far in the lineup. One was urban spaces, um, dense city centers, uh, communities that are not well connected to services in a city, um, and how people move about that space, and then. I realized as well that you know I talk a lot about competitive sport. That's not how a lot of people move their bodies. That's also not how a lot of people have a relationship to movement and physical activity and health in their spaces. Um, For a lot of folks, it's just getting on a bicycle. It has nothing to do with racing. It's just get on your bike and that's your method of transport to get to work, to get to school. So there's a lot of connection between what you do and what I do. And and I think it falls kind of at that intersection of cycling um, and, and active transit. And so I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about that work on barriers. Why is it that certain people may feel less comfortable, may have less access? Um, What are the, I guess, physical, but also psychological and health barriers to uh, participating or or feeling comfortable with active transit?
0: Right. I mean, that's a lot there, right? (laughs) There's a lot there. So I'll start with, number one, not all communities are created equally, and what is meant by that is that in the space of active transportation, what you find is that historically, as well as in modern times now, there are certain communities, again, those who are historically black, brown, and low income who lack adequate bicycle infrastructure. For instance, they don't have bicycle lanes. Lanes, If they do have bicycle lanes, for instance, they're not protected bicycle lanes. Um, and then even if they do have protected bicycle lanes, they have fewer lanes than their counterparts. There isn't um, proper access to uh, trails and other sort of multi-use facilities in these communities as well. And if so, again, they're not safe, they're not comfortable, and they're not as aesthetically pleasing as some of their counterparts. And so in these communities, what you find is that there's a lack of attention being paid to the duality of safety and the importance of addressing the duality of safety within these communities. And what is meant by that is that these communities, black, brown, and low income, they are burdened by traffic violence concerns, the same way their counterparts are. But they are also more so. They are also burdened by, excuse me, um, concerns around crime and violence against their bodies. So again, historically, as well as now, these communities lack the bicycle infrastructure, the pedestrian infrastructure, and access to public transit in a way that would allow them to safely move from point A to point B, um, whether it's to be more active and thus be more physically fit, or if it's simply to get them to some of their most vital services, uh, whether that's to get to a doctor's appointment or to go to school or to connect to a job. And so part of what we have to do is to continue to raise that awareness because there is this presumption that all things are equal and they're not. And so that's why I do what I do to remind people that uh, we're not there yet. And one of the ways that I've reminded people is that I have this assertion of arrested mobility. And arrested mobility is this assertion that black and brown people's mobility has been denied by legal and illegal authority. So they lack this sort of inalienable right to move, to be moved by these different modalities that we talk about, or quite frankly, to simply exist in public space. And when you think about this holistically, what you find is that this has resulted in adverse social, political, economic, and health effects that are widespread. But more importantly, they are preventable. Unfortunately, though, because they have not been addressed in a more holistic way, uh, they have now become the trauma resulting from these intergenerational. And so it's important that we raise the awareness, which is um, why I'm starting with that piece. But I, it was also important to give it a name so that people can, because it's such a big issue, uh, have a word or a phrase to, sort of capture what it is they're struggling with. And I think arrested mobility does that.
1: I agree. I, you mentioned that the first time we spoke about a month ago and I was captivated by it immediately. I think what's so interesting about that terminology as well is it speaks volumes to, like, the word arrested, um, you know, a, a, a body, a person being captive within a certain confinement, and not being able to move is exactly what we're talking about. Like the limit of, of like you say, arrested mobility, it really interesting kind of play on words, use of, of terminology that, that everybody can understand immediately. Um, it, you know, it's not rocket science to figure out what that means. I, I want to pick up on another piece that you just mentioned, uh, at the beginning about some of your work related to access to parks and public spaces. Um, This is something that with a history of redlining in the United States uh, is a problem. It's a problem where I come from in Canada, too. Again, not all communities are made equal, but parks are spaces that are good for health. They're good for socializing. They're good for playing. They're good for kids that, you know, like the benefits of parks are well known. So I'm hoping you can dig into that a little bit for us and unpack why it is that the that parks are not well distributed, and and what has to go into better improving or, or bettering access to parks for Black, brown, and poor communities?
0: Yeah, so one of the first things that we have to keep in mind, we talked about, to start this conversation, the lack of safe and accessible pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure in our communities, Uh, A better way, we would say that in the States is we would say there is a lack of complete streets. And so when you think about access to park and open spaces, in many ways, it begins with the streets that connect you to these places. And so when you look historically and presently at black and brown and low income communities, first, they lack proper access via complete streets to these locations. What we know is that proximity is an access. So many will argue that these communities have parks and open spaces present within them. But I'm quick to remind them that that proximity does not equate to access because you have to consider how unsafe many of these roadways and paths to these locations are for these communities. This is Especially especially a concern uh, when you look at the fact that black and brown people are like 72% more likely to be struck and killed by a car in the States. And so if you have incomplete streets adjacent to these parks, it makes it, you arrest their mobility, number one. But then number two, um, who in their right mind would want to cross these major thoroughfares to enjoy these quote unquote beautiful parks? Another thing one has to remember is that um, once you're within that part, there are ways in which you are treated that differs from your counterparts. For instance, if you are a black male or a black female, you may run into your mobility being policed by law enforcement, or you may run into your mobility being policed by the self-deputization of white citizens within that space. Who feel that your very presence, presence there, is a threat to their freedom, in uh, mobility within that space. So we have to think, we have to get out of our silos as planners, as engineers, as public health, as climate professionals, and we have to look more holistically at what is preventing people from being able to move freely within a space. And in these communities, there are parks but these parks are not designed in a way that encourages use. The roadways surrounding them serves as barriers to assessing them. The people who are enjoying these beautiful spaces with black and brown people um, have historically called law enforcement on them. And so when you look at all of that together, um, again, your mobilities are not only arrested, but then there's trauma that results from that, and that trauma is not discussed enough in our respective fields.
1: So aside from designing complete streets and then fulfilling that by actually implementing the design, what has to be done here? How do people who look like me be better allies? How do we encourage our planners and our engineers, like you say, to take on that work? What steps need to be taken?
0: Well, yes, we do need um, my white brothers and sisters out there to be more courageous. And more aware and about the sort of injustices that have took place. Um, so awareness, increase awareness. I'll give you the one, two, three, four, five, six awareness, increase awareness. Number two, improve design of the streets. So complete the streets. Number three, make sure that it's safe, not only during the day, but also at night for all people visiting that space. Uh, number four, realize that. There's design of the parks as well as the spaces around them have historically and culturally been very white centric. What that means is that many parks and open spaces are designed in a way that brings out the pride of whiteness, but ignores the pride of other cultures. And so when you don't see yourself present through the design, through the programming, in uh, the policing of a space, then more than likely all of that serves as a barrier. So there's not a one-trick pony here. This is not like, hey, you do this one thing and it's going to lead to Black and brown people frequenting these parks more. What you have to do is sit down with these people and understand what it is in a public space that they would most enjoy. What is it about a park that they need that would encourage them to come there more often than not? And so this starts with a conversation very similar to what we're having right now.
1: And so those community-engaged ideation sessions and projects and consultations and feedback seeking um, conversations, right? How are they, are they happening? Are there bright spots? Are there people out there doing this work, you know, really getting it right or on the way to getting it right?
0: I think if I had to give it a grade, I would say that we're on our way collectively to getting it right. Too often though, this sort of public involvement and engagement has been done simply as a formality. It hasn't been done from the perspective of less listen and learn from these populations to better understand what their needs are so that we can design, so that we can program our spaces for all users. Instead, there has been a lot of assumptions made about what cultures need to thrive in a space. And... As a result of that, we have parks and open spaces in these communities that are underutilized. In addition to that, what we have done as well is that we work in very aggregate terms. There's a lot of generalizations. And when you look at data, there's a lot of aggregation of data without any respect to the sort of individual differences among these population groups. And again, what they need to thrive. So we have to disaggregate the data. We have to disaggregate these experiences and really sit down and listen to people and raise up their recommendations to best design our parks and open spaces.
1: I'm going to throw myself under the bus here a little bit. I, in our last conversation, um, said that, you know, when I go, I'm i a cyclist, um, we had a conversation about cycling. And when I go out cycling, I don't often see black and brown cyclists in my community. And I, and I asked why that is. And you were quick to correct me, so I'm going to ask you to say it again, because you really you really kind of woke me up in, in that wrong thinking, and it was helpful.
0: Yes, I, I think what you see is a reflection of what you're proximate to. And I also think that many of us, both black and, and brown and white, uh, or all black, brown and white people, we've been socialized to to see the dominant white society as being those who cycle most. And that's unfortunate. Um, I brought that up to you because it was a constructive critique. It was out of love. Uh, It was to, you know, reveal something to you that may have been missing, which is that uh, many of black and brown and low-income people are cycling. You, because of your privilege and because of my privilege as well, We just may not be cycling at the times in which they are cycling. We may not be cycling in the communities in which they are cycling. And then we may simply be programmed to not even see them, even when they're visible. Unfortunately, um, for many of people, they become visible at the moment you think you're at threat um, of, of violence by them. And that's unfortunate because there's a scary black male narrative out there. That's extremely dangerous. But in my circles, I see all the time Black people biking. Uh, and I'm not talking about biking to and from the park. I'm talking about road cyclists similar to the both of us. I see beautiful groups of Black men, Black women, Hispanic men and women, Asian Americans all across this country who are biking. But if you live in a place that is segregated, if you live in a place that is not only just segregated in terms of space, but segregated along the lines of income and race, you're less likely to see it uh, because you've chosen to live in a place that doesn't prioritize diversity and inclusion.
1: Right, and I was humbled by that, and I appreciate it. So thank you for teaching me that. Um, you, I went away from that conversation. I went and did some homework. I learned about the cool work that <laughs> Tamika, uh, Tamika Butler is doing out in LA, like brilliant, brilliant work. Um, I learned about Justin Williams and his whole team who are providing uh, cycling, a lot of cycling visibility in terms of the sport of cycling to the black community that um, has unfortunately the mainstream media has not been following professional black cyclists for a long time. And that's a shame because they're elite athletes, uh, you know, topping the podium uh, around the world at different events. And so it was a it was a good wake up call for me to go see it. And I would encourage listeners to to go find those 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 communities, those people, those efforts that are happening. You know, it's there, um, and I wasn't seeing it because of my white privilege and because of you know the white sector of Montreal I happen to live in. So that was really interesting and and helpful for me. Uh, I want to pick up on another piece, and and I want to elaborate a little bit on what happens once we figure out. Once we help people to understand the concept of arrest and mobility and, and by proxy, what complete streets look like, and then you know beyond that, like once we put these pieces together, what does good policy look like? And I want to pick on policy a little bit because I feel like policy can be people-centric, um, but unfortunately, for a number of reasons, especially when it comes to cycling, infrastructure, for a long time, it's been very engineer-centric, very uh, quantitative—you know, data points on a map—but without considering the emotional experience of being on a bicycle, um, and who that person is, and who is that ex- who's having that experience on a bicycle. So we're in the midst of a cycling boom right now in North America. In many cities, it's very hard to get your hands on a bicycle this summer because of COVID. There's a number of cities who are looking to increase their bicycle infrastructure and and increase um, opportunities for people to be outdoors in a safe way. What would you say to those folks to make sure that as they're developing these policies, that it be inclusive, that we avoid repeating the same cycles that we've had for so long that produce incomplete streets?
0: Yeah. Again, that's a, that's a big one. That's a, that's a big question. Um, The policies that, I sort of advocate for number one, as you said, all of my policies are people-centric. They center the needs of people, in particular, those closest to pain. So one of the things I advocate for is those closest to pain should have all the power uh, in the process. Another thing that I, I advocate for um, is this are complete streets. So not only Is it important to adopt a policy, but it's also important to implement that policy? So complete streets policy and implementation. And when you're advocating for complete streets implementation, uh, what you're doing is you have decided to prioritize the needs of these disadvantaged communities. Thus, infrastructure development and funding happens first in these communities, black and brown. Um, in addition to that, um, I advocate for open streets. I think open streets, which are streets that are open to bicyclists, pedestrians, and others to freely move and then close the cars for a certain period of time, is a beautiful way of bringing together neighbors, regardless of race, race ethnicity, and income, law enforcement, and others in a respectful way so that we all can be free, we all can be healthy in public space. I am a huge fan of Safe Streets as well. Um, I'm also a fan of Vision Zero, though Vision Zero without the enforcement component, because my concern uh, with enforcement, of course, is that you know black and brown people are more likely to have violence inflicted upon them by law enforcement. So if we can do in Vision Zero without that. Focus too much focus on enforcement, I think that's great. Another thing we have to do is consider the needs of, of women uh, separate from um, these other, other groups. And what I mean by that is we, I, I spoke about how we aggregate and generalize all our discussions. Women have very unique needs within the infrastructure space, things that will make them feel safer than men. For instance, my research shows that they strongly prefer protected bike lanes over any other form of uh, cycling infrastructure. In addition to that, they want lights present uh, when they bicycle at night. The same could be said for persons with disabilities. Uh, too often in our generalizations, we leave out persons with disabilities so I strongly advocate that their concerns and needs are addressed as well. And then lastly, I would say two other, three other groups that when you're talking about policy should be at the table to help you determine what the policy is and then what the solutions are, are uh, seniors who are very vulnerable on our roadways, religious minority groups who are often, regardless of country, left out of the uh, conversation. And then um, sexual minorities, in particular, those who are black, because too often they too are policed on our streets in a way that is discriminatory and they're not free to move. And no one is covering it to the extent that they should be covering this in our respective fields. So those are some values and some perspectives that I put forth because I think we have enough policy. What we don't have is policy that centers people based on their uniqueness.
1: Right. Well, that sounds like a great set of marching orders for whoever is listening to right. to go out there and make sure, check who's missing at these tables and then figure out who's not there that should be. Um, I want to end this conversation with a bit of a fun question. Um, who are, who are your role models in this space? Who do you look up to as people who, uh, either use their platform for something really important or uh, interesting or who, you know, raised the voices of people around them? Like, who do you look up to as as the role models?
0: In this space or just in general?
1: We'll go with in general.
0: Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, there, that's a tough question, period.
1: That's the that's point. A great. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's a great question. I don't think I've been asked this question. Dr. Cornell West is one of my role models.
1: Tell us about them.
0: Dr. Cornel West, um, he's an academic, but he's also unapologetically black and Christian. And he's a fighter for the least of these, the people who are suffering. And so no matter what space he's in, you can tell that his faith is present and that he's advocating for the poor and the underserved. Another role model would be uh, LeBron James. LeBron is a role model, even though he's younger than I am, because he too, no matter matter the fame and the fortune, he hasn't forgotten where he's come from. And he continues to grow in his knowledge, in his awareness of self, uh, to advocate for those who are coming up behind him. Um, In addition to that, I would go with Michelle Obama. I really like how powerful how um, how brilliant her mind is and how beautiful her spirit is. I think if I was gonna start civilization, I would probably start with Michelle Obama.
1: Wow, that's a huge endorsement, but I would agree with all of those. Uh, so thank you so much Charles for for spending your time with me on the show and for sharing. Your important research and some great perspectives on, you know, what we need to improve in terms of keeping our streets and our parks and our open spaces healthy and inclusive, uh, moving forward, which is only going to become more important. So, I can really I say can. one other thing? Absolutely.
0: The one thing I would like to say is, people may say, "Why are you focusing on what's wrong?" The reason why I'm focusing on what's wrong is because we haven't gotten it right. And my fear is that if we don't pause for a moment and reflect on what is truly wrong, what we're going to do is we're going to perpetuate perpetuate the sort of inequities that currently exist and we're going to make things worse off for everyone. So I'm not speaking about what's wrong for the sake of, you know, speaking about what's wrong. I want us to get it right. And I think Right now, we have an opportunity to pause and to reflect on what has been done so that we can make the future brighter for us all.
1: I agree. That's, that's a great point. Um, if people wanted to follow your, your research, your work, where can people find you?
0: People can find me at CT Brown 1911 That's at CT Brown 1911 uh, For those of you who know what 1911 stands for, uh, for those of you who do not know, it's Cap uh, Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, of which I'm a member. So, at CT Brown1911 on Twitter, um, that's the best place to find me. Or look me up at Rutgers University. I respond to my emails and all phone calls, so feel free to give me a call. I'm also present at the same and LinkedIn at CT Brown1911 or Charles T. Brown.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure sharing this time with you.
0: Same to you. Take care.